Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. Shares of Ford Motor down a little bit more than 1% today. Let's find out more about Ford's results. We've got Bob Shanks. He is the chief financial officer of Ford Motor Company. Bob Shanks, thank you very much for being with us. Oh, thank you. It's great to be with you once again. All right. So where do you want to, where do you want to begin? Because I was going to go to the F-150 and go into some detail there, but maybe you want to just give us an overview because stock's lower. I mean, you know, the headline speaks for itself. Profit down. What's going on? Well, it's uh, for the first thing I guess I would say, Tim, is that everything is in line with our expectations. In fact, we came in uh, at a billion four in terms of adjusted pre-tax profit for the company. That was a bit better than what we had guided to, but it's around things that we expect to just be calendarization or timing things that will, you know, offset in the fourth quarter. So very much in line with expectations. I think the market's responding sort of consistent with that. Uh, one one thing of note, uh, Ford has been spending uh, big time on its aluminum-bodied Super Duty pickup. This is a, a, an effort to compete with uh, Uber and Google um, to transform Ford into more of a mobility company. Do you have any insights about whether this big investment is starting to pay off? Well, we're just in the process of launching uh, the Super Duty. We did make a similar investment on the F-150 uh, a year, year and a half ago, and that's paid off uh, beautifully. So the uh, the Super Duty is following, and actually next year our large uh, utilities, the Expedition and the Navigator, uh, those will also go aluminum. So it makes a lot of sense because uh, consumers get the benefit of a, a lighter vehicle but a much better performance. Uh, that's certainly been the case with the F-150. I'm sure it's going to be what we see with the Super Duty as it uh, continues to go to market. Tell us a little bit about inventory levels, because, uh, you know, we've heard that you've really cut back, right? Halting one of the two plants that builds the F-150. Well, everything that we're doing is consistent with, you know, our longstanding practice of matching production to demand. Uh, we said throughout the course of the first half of the year that we would be adjusting our stocks as the year progressed, and that's exactly what we're doing, Pam. Uh, we haven't actually shut uh, any of our F-150 plants, but next week, for example, we have three crews that build in Kansas City, and one of those crews uh, won't be uh, operating so that we can make sure that uh, our production stays aligned to demand. Our, our stock levels are, are fine and where we want them. Uh, but these plants run three crews constantly, so sometimes we just have to make tweaks or adjustments to make sure our inventory stay where we want them to be. Got it. But but having said having said that, and I'm sure you're scratching your head just as much as everybody else is. But you know the Mustang factory, right? That was idle because of a decline in sales. You have the Louisville plant uh, also. Uh, you know, I mean, you're doing what you need to do, obviously. Mm-hmm. But what? How do you read into the industry or into the environment that's making these kinds of things happen? 
Well, that's a good question. I mean, what we've been saying since uh, at least the second quarter earnings call, so uh, three months ago, is that we're starting to see a bit of a softening in the industry here in the U.S., and that's uh, on the retail side as well as uh, we saw in the third quarter a bit uh, on, on the fleet side as well. So still very strong levels, but slightly less than what we had seen. And in our case, the other thing uh, that we talked about at the very beginning of the year is that we were going to have a an upfront counterization of our rental uh, vehicles that we sell to the rental fleet. And that was based on their request, and that would be sort of, if you will, paid back in terms of uh, uh, the, the second half of the year. So that's a, that's a factor. What, what, is that, uh, what does that mean? Maybe just define that for people. Sure. So we sell uh, we sell to individual customers. We also sell to fleets, commercial, uh, governments, both federal and state, but also the rental car companies. Uh, we sold about two hundred and eighty thousand units to fleet or to uh, to rental last year. We'll do the same this year. Normally, that counterization is uh, is 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 timed more towards the second half than the first half. But in this particular year, uh, the rental companies asked us to provide them with our units uh, earlier in the year, which we did. So therefore, in a year-over-year basis. You know, we don't have those units uh, that we're providing in the second half, and so that's one of the factors that's affecting some of the adjustments that we're making, particularly on the car side uh, of the business. One concern that I've heard from a lot of people who speak to is that uh, you have auto loans, which are poised to top $1 trillion or already have topped $1 trillion for the first time ever uh, this year. And you're starting to see some firms, including J.P. Morgan, uh, pull back, raise the borrowing uh, standards as uh, the values of the underlying cars deteriorate. How concerned are you that a tightening of credit conditions in the auto lending sector could further weaken profitability at Ford? Well, a lot of that's a good question, uh, and I saw that article this morning uh, as well. Uh, but you have to remember, we have our own captive finance company, Ford Credit, which uh, finances uh, both our wholesales and a very high percentage uh, of our sales to individual customers. And uh, we have, uh, you know, we follow consistent uh, policies in terms of uh, loan standards, origination, uh, and so forth. Uh, the risk profile of our business is very constant. We, we do that whether we're in a down cycle or an up cycle. So I think what you're talking about more as a phenomenon that probably is going to affect banks and credit unions, uh, you know, we're continuing to follow the same policies that we have been. Well, what we have seen is a decline in auction values for vehicles coming off lease, and that's something that we talked about today in our earnings call. Right. Well, so that, that was sort of what I was going to pick up on. You have the resale values going down as people are buying more new cars and are not looking uh, to sort of buy the older ones. This creates a problem for loans that are like 68 months long, et cetera, because you have very little value left. Does this affect your business at all? And if so, how? Well, it's actually not um, normal. I'll call it uh, uh, vehicles that are financed through APR, that type of thing. What, what it really is, it's around the lease vehicles. So the industry's been leasing more and more vehicles uh, over the last number of years in an increasing or, or, or rising industry. Those vehicles are usually uh, leased for two years or three years, and so you have more and more of those vehicles coming back. So it's, it's really a, a supply and demand factor that's taking place. So as more of those units come back, it just uh, suppresses the value of uh, auction values for those off-lease vehicles, and that's the phenomenon that we're seeing. It can have an impact in terms of uh, the ability to get the prices that you want for uh, for new vehicles. It can also affect um, the, the volume uh, of new vehicles because people have more choices, if you will, of nearly new vehicles as those vehicles come back. So that's something that we're watching, and certainly in our Ford credit business, uh, it was an effect that, um, that we've seen throughout the course of this year as residual values have fallen, but it's, again, something we have forecasted and built into our uh, 
uh, outlook going forward. Bob Shanks, just quickly, I know that you joined Ford Motor in 1977. That's amazing. Well, I, th- I was going to tell people I was only 35 years old. Now I can't do that. Well, you know, you were a child prodigy. <laughs> there you uh, go, but Pam. The, re- the, reason, the reason I bring that up is, is because I'm just wondering, maybe in 10, 15 seconds, tell us, it, what does the market feel like to you today? It feels like we're uh, in a, a maturing part of the uh, of the cycle, particularly in our industry. We can see that with uh, softening industry sales. We see that with the credit cycle, you know, the discussion we were just having around auction value. So still a, a healthy part uh, of the cycle, but it's a maturing part of the cycle. Thank you so much, Bob Shanks, Chief Financial Officer of Ford Motor Company. On what's ahead for that company, they had largely expected to see uh, profits decline as they invest heavily in their new fleet of super aluminum, super duper trucks. Uh, thank you so much for being with us. And right now, what, what are the shares doing right now? Down about 1, 1.2%. This is Bloomberg. bring in Laura Keller of Bloomberg News, who covers uh, the banking industry, as well as Barrington Pitt Miller, equity analyst and Euro market expert at Janus Capital. Laura, I want to kick it off with you. Uh, Deutsche Bank released earnings today, better than expected. Its shares go nowhere. What's going on? Yeah, I saw that too. Um, I mean, when you look, though, into the results and you don't just look at that, you know, surprise profit. When you dig into some of the things, I mean, I don't know that you can see a sustainability um, in, in some of those numbers. Like, for example, if you look at the um, the fixed income results, great, good, but still the bottom of the pack for peers, bottom of the pack for advisory. So that's all the investment banking side of things. And then I think, too, a lot of um, analysts were not so happy with not getting more information on where we stand with the litigation and the RMBS settlement right. negotiations. I mean, Deutsche Bank itself is saying, look, we can't really provide you those kinds of things because it actually undermines our strategy and negotiation. Barrington, so after you saw these results, did you go to your uh, PMs and say, all right, go ahead, you can buy? Unfortunately not. (laughs) Okay. The reality is that the outstanding DOJ settlement is the big question mark on uh, Deutsche Bank today. And until we know, therefore, what the settlement is, we don't know what the share count is. And we don't know whether indeed this is a bank that's going to face a serious capital challenge at a time when its potentially market cap is falling to uh, levels which will make it potentially very difficult to refill the hole. Uh, It will then lead to serious question marks about, therefore, okay, then what does the shape of the business look like? Uh, You you can't maybe raise enough in the market, so you'll be forced into, and indeed John Grimes said he doesn't want to raise, you may be forced into strategic decisions such as selling the asset management business, which absolutely would address a capital hole, but it brings with it a 20% EPS dilution. Um, the, The options that Deutsche Bank faces here without knowing the DOJ settlement are far too broad for John Cryan, the CEO, and the management team to really give the market additional strategic ideas, initiatives. Because, as I say, until you know that number, you don't know whether your option is to simply cut the bonus pool or is it to sell asset management? Is it to try and raise a bit of capital? Is it trying a combination of all of the above? Uh, So I think for that reason, A, we didn't get anything new. I'm not surprised we didn't get anything new. The only way we would have got a material change and update would have been if we had the settlement number. Is there any bad news that you can't think of 
about Deutsche Bank right now? I mean, is there anything else out there that is bad that might come to the wow. fore? I mean, let's say they do get the, let's say they do, they are tagged with the 14 billion from the Department of Justice. Let's say they do sell assets. They do cut bonuses. They cut staff. Is Deutsche Bank still going to be around, let's say, in 12 months, 24 months? I think it's highly likely that the German state would be forced in a serious crisis to step in and provide assurance. Okay, so that's like worst case scenario. That is worst. I think that is worst case scenario. So it's now, 14... now, they're, they're, curiously, there may be a number of Europeans out there who would be quite excited about that because it might take the pressure off them. They might finally be able to do the same for themselves in Italy. But the reason I was going there is because at fourteen and a half dollars a share, is Deutsche Bank, you know, a buy right now? I mean, is this a stock that you know? There's a lot of bad news out there, and you go back, you say, I want to buy when there's a lot of bad news if the thing's going to survive, or maybe even someone's going to buy part of the franchise. Right? Is it a bottom? Is it a bottom here? Or it doesn't have to be a bottom, but just has to be you know decent. Not if it's a fourteen billion dollar fine. Okay. And if you then layer on Russian sanctions on top, the market is pragmatically saying that is an unrealistic number because it's the fourth largest global SIFI bank. Uh, it's one of the largest capital market counterparties in the world and particularly to U.S. financial institutions. Surely the DOJ isn't going to undermine all the recovery in the financial institutions and, and potentially threaten the counterparties. I think that is um, I, I think that's the market's pragmatic position. And therefore, the consensus number is something in the ballpark of five to seven billion. So that would make the stock. Attractive at fourteen and a half. At fi- at, at that kind of settlement, I yeah. think that takes a lot of the risk away. It right. doesn't. It, it, it doesn't mean to say that this is, a, a, you know, a compelling uh, business mix. But absolutely, that takes away that tail risk, and it's that tail risk that I think holds back an, a lot of investors today. Did we get a sense from their earnings about how much of their business, uh, their investment banking business in particular, has disappeared amid the cloud of uncertainty? Um, they reported uh, debt trading, debt and currency trading revenue that was up 14% in the third quarter, but that's versus 49% of an increase in debt trading from the five biggest U.S. banks. I, I think it, it's certainly on the call we got the impression that there, there clearly was business that was taken away from them, and some of that is returning. It is undeniable. Yes, there were stories out there that a number of hedge funds had removed prime brokerage business. Prime brokerage and equity, in fact, weren't, were actually weak, weak spots versus the FIC business. So I think it's fair to say, yes, we can absolutely identify that trend. But you know, overall, the market obviously took a big sigh of relief and said, well, the, the, the worst fears of uh, franchise erosion haven't come to pass. So, so that certainly is a positive. But there's no question that given the experiences of Lehman, given the kind of whole recency bias of European wobbles and worries back in 11 around the sovereign crisis, there's not a single risk manager out there or counterparty risk committee out there that is going to sit by and say, well, is there a risk? Yes, there might be. Well, we'll just sit on our hands and do nothing. I think it's quite likely we are seeing gradually that uh, risk committees are, are, de- are de-risking. Uh, and logically, you don't, re- you don't lose your job for de-risking and then putting it back. You will lose your job if you have a problem. But moving away from prime brokerage, I mean, if you talk a little bit more and delve into the investment bank itself, so many people have left Deutsche Bank. I mean, big bankers who are on these deals have gone. And if you look at their investment advisory business, I mean, they were the worst of the pack. So if you look at that and and extrapolate and say, okay, well, those are the deal makers that helped me bring in underwriting equity, for example. I mean, they were in the middle of the pack this quarter for that. So will you see in the future that if some of these key people have gone, that that will be worse? I don't see how you avoid that. I think that's fair. Um, the franchise, the you know, this is a people business, and you're setting the, the, the people up to recognise that you know they may not get a cash bonus, they may not get a bonus in 2016. 
Right. Maybe there, stock. You, 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 may, you may get stock. You may get some other form of uh, interesting asset mix coming out of your non-core bank. We've seen that done in the past. You, you're also going to potentially risk, you know, is there a clawback? Is there a clawback on unvested? Is there a, is, can you convert some of the unvested? Um, these are questions that obviously employees will be asking themselves. Um, but I think one point to remember is we've been through this. UBS has been through this. John Cryan was at UBS and UBS went through it. Um, many of the U.S. banks have been through it. Many employees who weathered the storm at these U.S. banks um, ha have experiences. So I think short term, yes, there can be erosion. But if you can steady the ship. I want to thank you very much for joining us. Barrington Pitt Miller, equity analyst from Janus Capital and Laura Keller of Bloomberg Finance. I want to bring in Ben Brody, a reporter for Bloomberg Politics. He joins us from Washington, D.C., home to Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 HD2. And he can be followed on Twitter at Ben Brody DC. All right, Ben Brody, tell us about these new leaks, these emails that are, in a sense, compromising the business relationship that former President Bill Clinton has with the same organizations that are also donors to the Clinton Foundation. Am I getting that right? Uh, yes, you basically are. Uh, the key here is that these things uh, just always overlap. Uh, the Clintons have always had a relatively uh, small group of very loyal staffers who often uh, play a lot of roles. And what this most uh, recent alleged hacked email uh, shows is it was a memo detailing one of these aides all the many things that he did for Clinton, uh, helping to raise money for the foundation, uh, getting Bill Clinton uh, speeches and uh, private events, and then uh, seemingly pressuring uh, this this particular aide, uh, ran a consultancy and seemingly pressuring some well, of this is clients. I mean, you can name him, right? I mean, Doug, this is Doug Band, Doug Band. correct? Yes, Doug Band, Doug and Band. he is the yes. co-founder of Teneo Consulting, a veteran Clinton aide, and this came all out uh, uh, from WikiLeaks. He calls it Bill Clinton, Inc., I believe. Yes. And he is pressuring his clients, like Coca-Cola and Dow Chemicals, uh, to give to the foundation. And so all three of those things are really lining up. Well, and Chelsea Clinton raised issues, right? I mean, she, around this time, was questioning uh, whether Doug Band uh, sort of had a conflict of interest as an advisor both to her father and the family foundation as he courted clients for, for uh, this consulting company. Exactly. Uh, she was concerned that he was using uh, the Bill Clinton name to build his client list. And this memo in some ways uh, seems to be a rejection of that. He is saying, I'm not using Bill Clinton to build my list. I'm using my list uh, to build the Clinton Foundation because it's not meeting its fundraising requirements. Do you think this is going to hurt Hillary Clinton? Uh, certainly, it uh, doubles down on the kinds of things that have hurt her, uh, the pay-to-play, uh, the appearance of uh, friendliness between uh, Wall Street, the appearance of influence. Uh, but of course, uh, we are in the closing days uh, of the election, and a lot of opinions uh, have already been formed. And it doesn't necessarily touch directly on her campaign. It's you know rather her husband and an aide of his and several of his efforts. Well, and how big of an ethical breach is it? Uh, sure. Uh, it's a big question. You know, lots of us do networking. You know, we might be involved with a charity and we might say to someone at the office, hey, could you give? On the other hand, it really seems like Doug Band has two masters and one are his paying clients and the other is his old boss. And he's trying to serve both. And it's not clear to me uh, that he was doing it in a way that was not conflicted. 
there's also the issue of signing a, a document that would preclude uh, a conflict of interest. And according to the email, it says that uh, P- former President Clinton doesn't have to sign such a document, even though, according to the email, it says he's been paid by three Clinton Global Initiative sponsors, gets many expensive gifts from them, and some that are at home. Right. Uh, also mentions travel, vacation stays, those kinds of things. And he's on the payroll of, of many of these companies. Like I think there was a 3.5... On boards hour. and things yes. like that. Makes speeches, absolutely. Um, it's unclear exactly what happened at the time. This was all happening in the midst of an internal audit uh, and whether uh, those kinds of ethical obligations are now in place at the foundation. Uh, we don't know, but it is clear uh, from the emails at the time that that does not seem to be the case. And how is Chelsea and Clinton involved here? Because uh, I believe she's had a, uh, a difficult past with this particular uh, advisor, aid. aid. Uh, sure. Uh, they seem to have a difficult relationship uh, from the email. There's a lot of uh, insults, a lot of accusations, uh, hacking influence peddling, all kinds of things. Uh, It basically seems that Chelsea Clinton was coming in to try and clean up uh, some of these overlaps and that she had basically brought the audit in. Um, And uh, Band was very unhappy with it. He felt that she was trying to walk into something that he had built uh, just because she was the natural heir. He sort of felt, seems to feel in these emails, uh, that he was really the the architect and she she was uh, butting in where she didn't belong. Yeah, well, and he referred to her as a spoiled brat kid. Uh, I was going to say, I mean, it really is like it really is like airing your dirty linen in in, in public. And indeed, there is a public summary uh, that was prepared by the law firm Simpson Thatcher. Right. And they talked about strengthening policies on conflict of interest. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that's something that uh, it was very clear that a lot of people around the foundation wanted to do uh, at that point. Uh, But as we have seen from a lot of reporting and a lot of different conflicts, uh, you know, they clearly didn't eliminate uh, the appearance of these sorts of things. In 20 seconds, are the people who you're speaking to, political consultants, bracing for another round of releases from WikiLeaks as we uh, finish up the Uh, cycle? We see these daily. Uh, Sometimes they make big news. Sometimes they don't. But we are always on the lookout for... for a lot more news that could change the uh, momentum of the election or not. Ben Brody, thank you so much for joining us. Ben Brody, reporter of Bloomberg Politics in Washington, D.C., the latest, breaking down the latest email scandal to emerge uh, from— you're really getting a look at, at, at what goes on behind uh, behind the scenes. I, I think that is the most fascinating thing. And the detail of all of the companies and the amount of money that they gave well, not only to Bill Clinton, but also to the foundation. Well, and we would be remiss to mention that this is the WikiLeaks, uh, the emails that were they're leaked to WikiLeaks and uh, are widely believed to have been uh, done, brought about by Russia. So it's a lot of uh, controversy here, uh, but a lot more, I'm sure, to come in the next 12 days. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.